Restoring Darkness is brought to you by Nevluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Welcome back, folks, to the Restoring Darkness podcast. Today's show, it's my great pleasure to be joined by Noah Sabatier. Noah's, Noah is a photographer and lighting researcher that is dedicated to advocating for better outdoor lighting. Big surprise on this show. Noah has spent the last five years living with a night shift sleep schedule. During this time, he realized that the streetlights in his city were far from optimal and recent changes had only made them worse. He has spent the past two years extensively reviewing scientific literature and technical documents alongside others advocating for better lighting. Noah is now working to raise awareness of common misconceptions that lead to bad lighting and the better practices needed to solve the problem. Well, he's not on social media and he doesn't have a website, but he uses a lot of what Mark, he puts a lot of his stuff up on softlights.org. So if you want to check out some of Noah's work, go to softlights.org. And we'd like to invite you to check out evluma.com, the magicians. They got a dark sky section on their website. They were one of the first manufacturers to put a dark sky section on their website. Even though I don't love the term dark sky, we know everyone knows what it means in the lighting community. So go to evluma.com, click the dark sky section. And also, I'd like to tell you, listeners, about the Lighting and Darkness Foundation, a newly formed 501c3 charity that was created by over 70 lighting distributors and over 20 lighting manufacturers. You should probably figure out the exact number, Scott. Someone should give that to me about when we formed and how many people were involved. But nonetheless, we are going to be advocating for the responsible use of outdoor light at night. And quite frankly, I don't know if we have all the answers to that question from a lighting industry perspective, but we're going to be engaging in the field, working on cases of light trespass, developing different methods to train the lighting industry to solve this problem. Because lighting industry, if you're listening to this, only we can solve this problem. So it's not going to be the plumbing industry that comes in and solves the light pollution issue. It's going to be the lighting industry. So check out restoringdarkness.com if you want to help us out. We need we could use a website developer right now if you want to donate some time. Um, we could uh, also use some cash. So if you go to restoringdarkness.com, you click the donate link right there. Why not become a monthly donor? That's right, restoringdarkness.com. Oh, and also check out softlights.org. Uh, Mark Baker, my new co-host on the show. He was in the last show, and now he's going to help me out today with Noah. Noah, welcome to the Restoring Darkness podcast. Welcome, everyone. I got a long list of um, different topics to to go on here, but what don't you like about LED lighting for outdoor and street lighting? There's two primary issues. Um, the spectrum, it's not ideal for safety or the environment. And the overall design of fixtures that does nothing to prevent glare or exposure to a high-intensity light source. So when you say that does nothing for safety, and I saw that in the prep for this, um, explain that, go deep into that, because it's a very important issue. The light pollution is generally as a result of fear. And so we create light pollution to abate our fears. I know that our fears are irrational. Why? So the biggest issue is there's really a lack of communication within the lighting industry about 
how the human eye works. Our eye is divided into two primary cells for vision. Cone cells essentially work during the day and are most sensitive to yellow light. Rod cells work during the night and are most sensitive to blue light. However, there's a lot more to it that the lighting industry does not recognize. So for example, rod cells are found in the peripheral of the eye, whereas cone cells make up the center. Rod cells, in order to have more sensitivity to light, they make some sacrifices. You cannot see sharply with rod cells. For example, you can't read and you cannot see color. So the main marketing point for an LED streetlight is this idea that blue light allows you to see better at night because our night vision works off of rod cells. Um, however, this doesn't take into account adaptation because people often mix up nighttime and night vision. The issue is that if you see any source of light within your vision, that is within that blue range, it's going to force your rod cells to de-adapt. The biological term for that is photochemical bleaching. There's a pigment within the rod cell that absorbs light. And when it absorbs too much light, it becomes transparent. And that's how your rod cell essentially shuts off. And once the rod cell shuts off, it takes upwards of half an hour to regenerate that pigment, during which time you have no more night vision until you reach that complete pigment again. So the this photochemical bleaching. Now, I don't think anyone would report that they can't see color beneath 5,000 Kelvin LED streetlights. Um, are you referring to people driving through these particular light sources? Um, I, I like from my perspective, just anecdotally, um, I don't know that not being able to see color is an effect someone would report. Can you go a little bit deeper into that for me? That's right. And that's a very important piece of information because that tells us that the cone cells are in use and cone cells are most sensitive to yellow light. They work best essentially under sodium lighting. So if you can see color, like you said, under street lights, um, that's a cone cell response and your vision is coming from cone cells and that blue light is not helping you see any better. There's no major rod cell activity going on there when you can see colors. The source of light. Now you said that when when we're accessing the source of light, are you referring to the um, laptop in the sky phenomenon, where we have these flat uh, arrays of LED light placed at the bottom of a flat piece of metal, where if you look up them, there's very intense glare, and there's even intense glare in the horizontal view of the light. So if you're driving towards it or you're walking towards it, you can see the source of light from a horizontal perspective away from it. Is that what you're referring to? Or are you talking about light coming out of a light fixture, even though if let's say it's it's um, uh, reflected or it's um, 
diffused in some way. Certainly talking about, like you said, the laptop in the sky, that flat fixture that essentially exposes your eyes to the full brute force of that light. Mm -hmm. And so that's what's causing this photochemical bleaching? It certainly contributes to it. Um, overall, what else, what else causes the... it? So, like we, like you said, the primary factor is the luminance of the light source. Is that light intensity? Mm -hmm. The other factor is the spectrum, and it's really um, almost a paradox because blue light is most efficient for your rod cells; they see best under blue light. But that same sensitivity. Um, causes them to shut down easier. So, for example, that's why military bases often use red light. Um, it's not efficient for your rod cells, but it allows them to fully activate and give you night vision. It's the same thing for astronomers. They use red headlamps um, because that way you can actually gain night vision and see without a light source. Mark. Noah, you're, you just said something that's fascinating that I hadn't heard before. Uh, you said that the military bases use red light. Um, when I was in Boy Scouts uh, and Cub Scouts, uh, we also used red light uh, when we were out on camping trips. We put a red filter on our flashlight, and that was something important that they taught us. Put this red filter over so that you can see and you're not blinding others and you're not uh, messing up your nighttime vision. So uh, this was something I learned, and the military seems to understand that. So what we're having uh, confusion is, is that cities and highways have switched to blue light. Uh, the street lights that are above are all blue. Based upon our past experiences, we would think that it should be red uh, for our best vision. Um, you mentioned that our cone cells are in the middle of our eye, and the rod cells are on the sides and that these rod cells are for peripheral vision, uh, but that these rod cells get bleached out by the blue light. The uh, LED streetlights and perhaps the oncoming car headlights are bleaching out our, our rod cells and making them useless. And so uh, how is it that this the industry then has switched us to blue when it just seems like it's the wrong color for nighttime vision? The primary issue, and I can only speculate here, um, really what the professionals are up to, um, there seems to be a lack of reading. Um, like I started the conversation with, there is a lack of communication between scientific fields and the lighting industry. Um, last year, I reviewed a document. My city produced a 100-page report on essentially their reasoning to switch to LED streetlights. And it went through many of the references for the report, including the original um, vision models that went into mesopic visual performance, where both the cone and rod cells are in use. And many of the report's conclusions essentially disagreed with what the city wrote in their report. And I've seen this many times, whether it's marketing, whether it's a report from the city, even stuff, for example, from the Illuminating Engineering Society, which is often seen as 
really the top dog in terms of lighting standards. They often make statements that disagree with their citations. So I can only speculate here that they never took the time to read it, they never took the time to understand it, or they never took the time to really place it in context alongside the other research that's needed. I'm going to answer Mark's question for you. There's a very simple explanation as to why they chose four and 5,000 Kelvin temperature as the source of outdoor lighting. It's because it has the highest lumens per watt. And um, when the um, uh, three-letter organizations, non-player characters, as I call them, Mark, the NPCs of lighting, came in and took control of the industry and bankrupted many businesses along the way that were advocating for different things, um, they said the only thing that matters is lumens per watt. That's all we're interested in. We don't want to hear about anything else. And unfortunately, there's been many consequences from that single focused um, radical change. And so when we introduce these radical changes, uh, whether it to our infrastructure, whether it be lighting or um, whatever, we tend to stay very focused on what we perceive to be the um, best case scenario. And instead of saying, what's the most likely scenario, what is the worst case scenario? And how likely are these other scenarios in occurring along with the idea that the best thing for everyone to do is shut up and put in the 5,000K lights. And that's what happened in lighting. We were told to shut up and put in the 5,000K lights. And so that was the diktat, and they control the sales. These three-letter agencies control a market. They, they um, are a gatekeeper on the retrofit market because they control access to utility rebates. And so that's a very simple um, explanation is that the lighting industry was told by an outside agency that you can only use 5,000 Kelvin in outdoor streetlights and we don't want to hear about anything else or you don't get any rebate money. And if you don't get any rebate money, nobody changes any lights. And so that's what happened um, with respect to that. And that's why that decision was made. Um, but now we're dealing with the consequences of bad policy and bad um, you know, again, NPCs, non-player characters, thinking it doesn't matter what happens with lighting because we just need to use lighting as a, a hammer to hit the climate change nail. And that's all it's good for, and there's nothing else that needs to be talked about or done. And this is a catastrophe, an absolute catastrophe um, everywhere. And you can just look at the wildlife deaths to, as a starting place for that. Uh, Noah, tell me... Um, what have you learned from IES and CIE studies that you say they're in the notes here? It says we're tightly controlled lab conditions. We haven't really referenced anything. What studies have you read and how do they conflict with our current operating procedures? So the primary study for mesopic vision, again, finding out what happens at nighttime when we're driving, is the mesopic optimization of visual efficiency. This was a four-part study conducted um, through a variety of European Lighting Standards Institutes, published in the Lighting um, Technology Journal. And they examined four things within the laboratory. They examined how fast you can detect an object, um, the minimum contrast needed to detect an object, and how much light you need to discern details of that object. And they did this under different spectrums of lighting, 
and different light levels within that mesopic range. And the way the experiments were designed is essentially the participants sat in front of a projector and light levels were projected onto that using a dimmed light source. So for example, if they're testing 0.3 candela per square meter, that's the only light level the participant sees. In addition to that, the participants were given up to half an hour to adjust their eyes to that. So this gives us good results for a laboratory. However, we can't use these in the real world without giving additional context for visual adap adaptation. Because I'm sure none of us here have ever driven at nighttime for half an hour without seeing a light source, including your own headlights. Um, so overall, the results need additional context. And as of 2017, for example, another paper was published in the same journal, essentially reviewing what we've done so far on this research. And as late as 2017, many years after the LED transition began, um, there's still a discussion of essentially, we don't have the research yet to implement these models that were used to justify LED streetlights. Wow. That's some amazing stuff. You threw out a number, uh, 0 0.3 candela per square meter. That's the metric for luminance. Luminance is, uh, is the metric for density of the light from a flat surface. So LED chips are flat, so that's the metric we should be using. And yet, uh, we don't see that metric luminance uh, in the, it's, at the, it's in the spec sheets for the chip. But we're not seeing it in the specs for the streetlights. I was just looking last night, uh, streetlight manufacturer, they've mm. got their specs, they've got lumens, mm -hmm. lumens per watt, mm -hmm. color rendering index, uh, but they don't have luminance. Um, and in you, you made a video, a one-hour video, uh, sort of debunking uh, LED streetlight myths. And in that video, you said you've done some work to measure the luminance coming from the streetlight itself at least as high as 100,000 candela per square meter. Hmm. If we compare 100,000 candela per square meter from the streetlight that's directed into our eye versus the reflected light, that's 0 0.3. That's something like a million times more intense. Uh, do you, what's, what are your thoughts on that? This again ties back into essentially the biggest missing piece, which is visual adaptation. Um, trying to find out what the eye does when it's in the situation that you need to see something on a dark surface, but there's this very intense source of light directed at you or many cases, dozens, streetlights, headlights, security lights. Mm -hmm. um, there was a study done in 2015, a massive 250-page report conducted by the National Highway Transport Safety Association. And the study, it took over a year to complete. It involved a test track. Um, the surface was repaved several times to test different surfaces of the road. It used 10 or 15 streetlights, test vehicles, and just about anything you could want for a more realistic study, except for oncoming headlights. And the study found that um, 
there's essentially no difference in performance between sodium lighting and LED streetlights in terms of the distance needed for drivers to see an object and react to it. Um, and actually the conclusion of the study specifically stated that for high-speed roadways, 50 kilometers an hour, 80 kilometers an hour, there is no benefit to LED streetlights, um, simply because at that speed, you're relying on your focal vision, your central vision, which is entirely cone cells. So even if um, your rod cells were fully functional and there's an object in the middle of the road, it's your cone cells that see that. The, um, that's uh, my gut instinct on all of this. And I'm not, I don't read research studies. I just do podcasts, <laughs> but the, my gut instinct is that there's definitely like when a police officer pulls you over on the side of the road and walks up to your car at night, he or she will shine a very bright, bright flashlight into your car. And the effect of this will to make them invisible so that they can see you and you can see you can't see them. And I think a good comparison for people that aren't in lighting industry and then maybe have gotten a little overwhelmed on this podcast with um, with technical uh, talk um, is that our our street lighting systems are optimized to be viewed from above, not to be viewed going through. And so if you wanted to make a lighting system that you could be 100 feet in the air and see everything that's going on in the road, you would build the kind of lighting systems we have now. They're not built for people that are passing through that territory horizontally on the road or walking. They're optimized in a contrasting form so that you could see perfectly from above, 100 feet above. You could see everything that was happening on the roadway. And it's not the it's not optimized for those moving through that space. Was that a fair analysis, Noah, of what uh, of what would for people that aren't technical in this regard? Absolutely. The current um, essentially situation we have within the selection process for roadway lighting, as you said, it assumes that the viewer sees the roadway and nothing else. It assumes the streetlight itself doesn't exist. It relies on the assumption that people drive without headlights and that you will never see oncoming headlights. Um, there's no considerations at all for what happens if you actually view the light source. And so, Mark, we have a situation where, and I'm going to let you take it from here a little bit with Noah. We have a situation where we've created a pseudo environment where lighting is actually optimized to not to, to reduce visual acuity. That's what my argument would be with respect to what Noah was saying is that the systems we're putting in right now, not only do they create light pollution, not only do they kill birds, not only are they not good for our health, but they actually don't operate the, for their stated purpose. Yeah, Michael, you, you, so you've sort of identified uh, industry-wise the government players have pushed the high blue because it's the most luminous uh, efficacy, the highest luminous efficacy is for LEDs anyways, is to have that sharp blue. So if that's all you're concerned about and you're not concerned about health effects, you're not concerned about safety, you start inventing 
reasons why you should use blue in the nighttime environment. Noah, in your video, you, you talked about some of the health effects uh, of the blue light uh, besides the bleaching uh, of your rod cells so you can't really see. Um, there's this interruption of our hormones, uh, specifically melatonin. I was curious about this, uh, this melanopic content that, that they put in the stats that they talk about. There, there, if I recall, there was a, uh, some numbers that showed uh, high pressure sodium as 0.1, whatever the number was. And then the next closest LED stripe, street light was something like if I'm remembering correctly, like 1.5, if that was melanopic content, but it was something really, really larger. And then they, then in your video, you explained how the more blue it got, the worse this number got. Can you talk to us about the melanopic content and what that all means? Certainly. So within the eyeball, there's a third photoreceptor. It is called the non-image forming photoreceptor because the only thing it does is essentially act as a light sensor for biological timing and melatonin production. Um, so it's similar in sensitivity to rod cells. It peaks in the deep blue range a bit deeper than rod cells do. Rod cells peak in bluish to green light. The non-image forming photoreceptor peaks in deep blue. And as you said, Mark, um, when a person is exposed to this light during their biological dark period, the SCOTO phase, it, at the very least, it disrupts melatonin. Um, we know that much. The extent is still being researched as to how much a streetlight outside your window can disrupt it. Um, there's essentially been no research into what happens if you're outside, if you see, for example, a bright billboard, oncoming headlights, um, how much that disrupts your melatonin. It also elicits a stress response. Um, research was done on chickens exposed to a bright source of white light at four in the morning, and it actually found that they had a biological stress response um, with the same gene reaction as heat shock, which of course is a very severe response to have. It's very damaging to an organism over time. Oh, Mark, my. I know I, I know that yeah, I pointed to you to, to jump in, but I, I, I'm going to give it back over to you. I just want to add something about the chickens. Um, you know, one of the things we know from outdoor lighting is that if you want to um, move, if you want to um, um, have the unfortunate souls that are homeless move to somewhere else, you simply shine light in them and they will move. They won't sleep there anymore. And so we know that, you know, we know that light does affect different types of criminal activity differently, but they know for sure that if you want people who are homeless to pick up their tents and sleeping bags and go somewhere else, all you have to do is shine light on them. Go ahead, Mark. Sorry. But the same as the chickens, humans are very similar to chickens in that regard. Sorry about that. Go ahead, Mark. Yeah, sure. There's, there's a lot of that. So it, you know, based upon this conversation today and, and plus stuff that we've learned over time, it doesn't seem like the authorities have, have decided to put in these lights based upon our health. And it seems like that the, the reasons for using blue, it has something to do with more with some decision that was made uh, and the safety aspects were just sort of invented. It just doesn't seem realistic to me. Um, 
just sort of switch topics if that's all right. Um, you had another interesting point in your video uh, about people taking these surveys and expressing a preference for the brighter light. They, they actually thought that was great. Um, but then you pointed out that when they switched to from the high pressure sodiums to the LEDs, that the brightness wasn't necessarily attributable just to the LED, but the fact that the high pressure sodiums may have been collecting dirt and leaves and bugs and stuff and, and making the glass and the refractive uh, lenses and stuff all c colored in dirt. Tell us something about how this maybe this brightness thing uh, could have been achieved by keeping high pressure sodium rather than switching to LED. Certainly. So the transition to high pressure sodium began as early as the 1960s, and it really took off during the 1970s oil crisis when energy efficiency became a big demand in street lighting. Um, many street lights um, were installed during the time, and the fixtures were never switched out until LEDs. So there's two big components we have to look at. The refractor lens within the streetlight. It's a large glass dome, and it's not an airtight seal. The streetlight is designed to be easily opened up by a technician to switch the bulb. Um, there's no seal, you just pull something and it pops right open. So over time, bugs can get in there. They essentially die within the fixture and collect. Dirt gets in there, dust gets in there. I've seen many streetlights in my city with physical piles of dirt sitting inside them. And I'm sure you can only imagine if the windows of your home never got cleaned for 50 years and they had dirt sitting in them between the layers of glass. You can imagine how much darker the inside of your home would look. Um, how much the sunlight would struggle to illuminate your home. And it's the same issue with streetlights. The other issue is the aluminum reflector. It wears out over time. There's many estimates, essentially anywhere from one to 3% per year, it loses that reflectance. So essentially after 40 or 50 years of service, it, reach, it mathematically it reaches zero reflectance. Of course, it doesn't go that low, but it reaches a very ineffective amount for directing that light downwards. The, uh, the issue with the existing infrastructure, um, I think we also have to, to say just how long those lights have lasted. And, and that's actually a wonderful uh, techn technology that we built to allow those lights fixtures to stay in service for 40 or 50 years. Anyone listening to this, I can guarantee you that there is no LED light fixture that will be in service for more than 10 years. I'll tell you that without a doubt. The second thing is the LED light fixtures will also get dirty and there will get, they will have dirt inside of them and water and many of them will not perform well in the cold with ice and freeze and thaw because HPS and metal halide will literally melt the ice off the fixture because of ambient heat. LEDs won't do this. And so the issues of maintenance are universal to all systems that we mount 30 or 40 or 10 feet in the air. You're going to have problems with dirt, dust, bugs, all manner of different problems. And LEDs are just about to hit that cycle right now, Noah. Um, tell me a little bit about some of these um, 
the DeBoer scale, the Rayleigh scattering, um, sky glow from reflected light, and some of these other consequences we were seeing. Like in one of the notes here on the prep, it says that the ground below an LED light fixture is often three or four times brighter than the ground below an HPS fixture, which means a, a lot of the light is being re-reflected back up into the sky as light pollution. Talk a little bit about some of that and some of the metrics you that people use to measure that. Certainly. So the DeBoer scale is essentially the original glare perception scale. There's two main types of glare we look at. There's discomfort glare, which is your perception. And there's disability glare, which is the physical scattering of light within your eyeball that can be mathematically calculated. Um, so for discomfort glare, as early as the 1950s, when the original DeBoer studies were done, it was understood that shorter wavelengths of light, so bluer light sources, produce more glare. And in the same way with disability, disability glare, we see similar results. Um, we see that blue light produces more glare within the eyeball. Um, there are still some questions as to the exact mechanic, the exact physics principle behind that scattering within the eyeball because of course there's many materials in there, but rarely scattering specifically, it addresses particles um, smaller than the wavelength of the light, smaller or larger. Um, I can't remember which one, but essentially it covers water particles. They fall under that category. And of course there's water in your eyes, water in the atmosphere. So this is where that scattering um, essentially disorganizes the blue light. Within your eyeball, it creates a physical wall of light in front of your retina that's difficult to see through. And within the atmosphere, it produces illuminated fog. It produces sky glow. And that's a big issue that really the community looking to address light pollution um, doesn't bring up often. There's this misconception that if we have a perfectly shielded light source, it produces no light pollution. And unfortunately, that's not true at all. There's still, as we just talked about atmospheric scattering, the light coming down can scatter sideways, upwards, wherever it wants to, based off of the atmosphere and the wavelength. It can also reflect off of the ground. <clears throat> So I live in Canada here, and where I live, I have snow on the ground about six months of the year. And that essentially turns the ground into a giant mirror for light pollution. So during the winter, I can go outside at two or three in the morning, and I can easily walk around. I don't need a light source. I actually went to a park outside my city, about a 30-minute drive. It's listed as a dark sky reserve. But on this winter night, it was bright enough that I could have read a book there without a flashlight, just from the light pollution from my city over 80 kilometers away. So this is really the big issue here is that shielding isn't enough. Um, no matter how much you shield a light fixture, the light still escapes one way or another. So really, the only thing we can do is select a wavelength of light that does less damage to the environment once it escapes. 
Well, what about reflectance? So in the past, you would have an HPS or metal halide light fixture. And I've often thought that one of the problems with LEDs is their direct nature. So, and I'm, I'm speaking primarily from the outdoor lighting perspective here. But if you go in and you look at an indoor light fixture, nobody would put one of these outdoor light fixtures inside. It would be brutal. No one would want to work under them. We all know that. Everybody in the lighting industry knows that. That you would never put that. What what is a low ceiling light fixture look like? It's a flat panel with an opal lens over top of it, which diffuses the light, and and so the LED arrays are not visible to the naked eye. And we had originally when we started, you we had these tubes where you could see the LEDs, and and everybody hated that. It wasn't until they came out with these opal lens tubes that the market really took off. Why is that? That's because people don't want to look at LED arrays. It's horrible and they know it's bad and they feel it right away. Why has it been ignored in outdoor lighting? Because people don't work under it. They're not sitting under it all night long going, oh my God, that light is brutal, right? And so we, we have these different priorities for the interior lighting. The other thing is that a lot of, there's no reflecting going on. And so if we were to create larger shoebox, old style shoebox lighting fixtures, where the LED arrays were literally not pointed down, but pointed up into the light fixture onto reflectors and pushed out, would that not mitigate this issue substantially, Noah? You're right, it would make a huge difference. I did see this once in my city. Someone had taken their old high pressure sodium fixture with the big refractive lens and they stuck an LED bulb in there. Mm -hmm. And of course, I don't recommend staring into a light fixture, but I was essentially able to stand right under it and look straight up, and there was almost no discomfort. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing for tube lighting. Um, There's a parking lot near my house that uses magnetic induction lighting, Mm -hmm. which is essentially a fluorescent tube without electrodes. And I was able to, again, stare straight into the light fixture even though it has that you know that very harsh fluorescent look that very bluish light i was able to stare right into the fixture without any sort of discomfort so certainly like you said um the intensity of the light source whether it's reflectance or diffusion just really mitigating that um unblocked view of the light source goes a huge distance to solve this issue the uh with the i call it there's like a mixing happening with um pre-led light sources um where the light is going in a whole bunch of directions and then is bounced off a reflector and then try sent out in a mixed form. I know it sounds strange to say that, but it's almost like it gets mixed up before we shoot it out. And so it's not as harsh. Whereas you have these LED diodes on an outdoor street uh, light fixture that are literally like, as Mark would say, laser beams. They're literally pushing straight down and you can see them on the horizontal plane. And particularly for people with aging eyes, they'll go under a bridge, say, on a on a dark road, they'll come out the other side, Mark, and they won't be able to see anymore. You know, they'll they'll lose their visual acuity for a second, two, three seconds. And when you're traveling at 
we used kilometers earlier. No, we're going to say 70 miles per hour or 50 miles per hour, even 30 miles per hour. That's a very dangerous scenario. And if you combine that with someone with these laser beam headway, uh, headlights coming the other way, this is a recipe for a lot of accidents, Mark Baker. When my partner and I travel uh, on the roads, and I, uh, we avoid it a lot now, we really don't want to be out there because of all this intense light, especially this blue light. Um, but when we tr travel at night, she and I will talk about LED lights the entire time. It, we can't get it off of our minds because the LED street lights are blinding us, so we're, we're shielding our eyes. That way, the LED headlights are in our eyes, the gas station lights. I mean, there's all this blue, blue, rich light is everywhere. Um, and so this seems like this problem needs to be solved because in the past we could talk about the future. We could talk about our friends and our family. And now all we do is talk about these lights the whole trip. It's not that enjoyable. Um, no, uh, Michael and I have talked about before about the lighting industry solving this problem. And there's more money to be made for them if they were to solve this problem. Um, can they solve it with LEDs? Uh, if so, like what would they need to do? Or do they need to switch back to high pressure sodium, switch to low pressure sodium? Uh, do you know any suggestions for the lighting industry how to start making more money and getting this problem solved? Certainly, um, step one is to um, address the research, is to not only address um, other fields such as biology and ecology, but the own research that um, their lighting-specific journals cover, their own research that very clearly states, we do not have the evidence to switch to a blue-rich light source. We have no evidence to suggest that once you consider the real-world conditions, that this improves safety in any way. So certainly, Mark, we can switch to amber LEDs, yellow LEDs, something that replicates a high-pressure sodium light source. Um, but as Michael was saying earlier, there's a big issue in doing this because right now, yellow and amber LEDs are not efficient. Um, they often fall behind high-pressure sodium lighting in terms of raw luminous efficacy, which essentially makes them redundant. And I can guarantee you nobody, whether it's in the lighting industry, um, a lighting engineer, certainly the Illuminating Engineering Society, they're the biggest voice in this right now. And it would be a disaster for them if they came out and said, hey guys, we know that we directed this global transition that costed tens of billions of dollars to LED streetlights. Oh, sorry guys, we made a mistake. Time to switch again. You know, all these streetlights that you paid almost $1,000 per unit because we told you that, oh, it's going to last 50 years. Well, it turns out we need to replace them again. Um, so as much as there is a new monetary opportunity to sell new light fixtures, I don't see it happening from the lighting industry, at least not the current players. Someone would have to somehow displace the biggest voices, which have already said um, that blue light is the way to go, and they don't want to turn around. Well, Noah, I got to jump in here and say to you, I believe 
that people can admit they're wrong, okay? But oftentimes, it can only happen after they've exhausted every single excuse they can possibly muster and bring to the table, you know? Um, I was once uh, talking about geopolitics, which will keep off the show, but I'll use the anecdote anyway. And as a Canadian, Canadians kind of have a, a moral right to, to criticize Americans for some reason. We get away with it so easily compared to our other Europeans and that. But you know what? America can always be trusted to do the right thing, but only after they've exhausted every single opportun- uh, other, op- uh, other avenue and opportunity. Okay, so I mean, I think we're in the same boat with the lighting industry where um, the evidence of damage is just becoming so overwhelming to all the players in the industry that the people that are on the streets and that are in the front lines that are founded the Lighting and Darkness Foundation have had it. And they're saying, you know what, we can't follow these people anymore. The, like, I mean, you have to remember, they just, and, you know, I like Colleen Harper. This is nothing personal to her at the IES. She's the executive director. They brought in an outsider that knows nothing about lighting to run the IES. And yes, she's not in charge of all the technical standards and all this sort of thing. But, I mean, listen, we got bigger problems in equity, diversity, and inclusion in the lighting industry, okay? Like, we have actual real environmental problems, folks. If you're in the lighting industry and you're listening to this, we have real problems. We've caused a lot of damage. We've done a lot of things that we need to correct. And the sooner we pull our damn heads out of the sand and just say, hey, Noah's not an idiot, you may have something we need to listen to here. Mark Baker's not an idiot. These people are pointing out real things that we need to address. The problem is right now, Noah, this head in the sand, I hear no evil, see no evil, seems to be all over our society in all sorts of different areas. But fortunately, we have a path out, but it might take a lifetime to get out of it. It's going to take a long time, but we have to start working at it, Noah and Mark. We can't say be hopeless. And you know what? Have an off-ramp. Look, acknowledge the problem. This is a problem. Acknowledge it. It's a very simple lighting industry. We've created a lot of light pollution. Um, what's his name? Uh, Ruskin Hartley from Dark Sky came out a couple months ago. 10% a year it goes up. That's a monster number. That's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous number. And so we have to stop as humans. We have to stop and step back and say, okay, HPS isn't such a bad light source, actually. When you think about it, it's very high lumens per watt, has a little bit of mercury in it, but we have two opposing forces there. We got one, the lumens per watt dragon that's breathing fire on everybody. And two, we got the no mercury dragon that's breathing fire on everybody. Okay, so you're not allowed to have mercury. Everything has to be LED. So we may as well just accept that and start improving these LEDs so that we can achieve the results that are best. And so it's time to, I mean, I know you want to go back to HPS, Mark, and that and low-pressure low sodium is completely off the table. I don't even know if anyone knows how to make those light bulbs anymore. I got one in stock, I think, um, one light bulb. Um, but you know, the, we have to, we have to understand that LED is not going anywhere. It's likely going to be like this moving forward and we have to adapt it to suit these needs. No one, and I believe we can, but the lighting industry has to say to the world, you have to stop using us as stop hitting us with your climate change hammer because there's other things that have to happen too. No, like it's not all about lumens per watt. There's a little spiel.
<laughs> Noah, we're coming up on 47 minutes. Oh, my goodness. Scott, what happened to the show? It flew by. Do you have any final thoughts for the Restoring Darkness audience? Certainly. Um, the biggest issue, like you said, is to simply get the word out there. Create that pressure either for the big players to admit they did something wrong or for someone else to come up for someone else to take that stage and really lead the lighting industry in a better direction. Um, so check out Mark's website. Um, some of my work is hosted there. Um, someday I'm going to have my own website sometime in the future where I'm going to post my work. Um, and that's a big advocacy tool we have right now is to essentially because right now the battle within the lighting industry for light pollution is we have to balance you know safety versus light pollution we see it as two opposing sides but of course when we review the evidence it's actually the two things are on the same side um, yellow amber lighting is ideal both for safety and mitigating light pollution and it's ecological damage so as soon as we can get that word out that we have no reason at all to not switch back to yellow lighting. Um, I think we can make some big changes. And the only thing opposing this is the egos of people on the other side. And so if you want to battle the egos, go to the Lighting and Darkness Foundation's website, restoringdarkness.com, where this podcast is hosted. You can click the donate link. That's right. Become a monthly donor. We're doing good work over here. I'm telling you, this uh, this organization is from people in the lighting industry. We created it for this purpose, to solve this problem. And I've often said on the show that it's a lifetime-long problem. Before we go, I want to tell you to go to Vluma.com. they got a dark size section on their website and all kinds of great products. I want to encourage you to visit softlights.org. And bye for now. Look no further for dark sky-friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.